touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and today I'm joined by Joe McCormick, head writer of Forward Thinking. Hi everybody. Joe is uh, guest hosting while Lauren's out. She will be back soon, so no worries there. Joe and I have worked extensively together on Forward Thinking, which is the show all about future technologies, future science, what the world is just going to be like in 20 to 50 years or beyond in some cases. And so one of the things uh, we've talked about at length on that show is 3D printing. So I thought we would uh, have a little little discussion about 3D printers. I'm excited to talk about this because the only other time I've been a guest host on Tech Stuff, we talked about the Antikythera mechanism, one of the oldest machines on Earth. Yeah. Or, or what some would call probably the oldest computer. And so that was the ancient past of technology. Now I want to talk about what's big in the future. And I think what's big is 3D printing. Yeah, it's, it's undoubtedly going to be huge. And in fact, uh, Joe has some interesting firsthand experience he can relate because as it turns out we here at the office have a, a new 3d printer and joe has sort of become the uh the overseer of it by default he was the one who uh, so. seized the opportunity <laughs> yeah nobody told me to we we came in one day for a monday morning meeting and they just wheeled this 3d printer in and i was very excited and they said well start playing with it and nobody else started playing with it so i seized the day Yep. Seized the moment. Se- yep. Seized the opportunism. Seized the 3D right. printer. Yeah. And uh, grabbed hold of it, got the instructions, installed all the software, and I started printing plastic death. Just monstrosities, adhesion yeah. failures, rolling up big balls. Uh, it turns out there's a learning curve to yes. using this this device. And Joe has done a lot of trial and even more error to figure <laughs> out exactly how to use it. And, I and wish you could see the just the beautiful plastic graveyard. Yeah, there, there's some things that look like uh, some sort of plastic spaghetti that yeah. has just I, now. I call them plastic hairballs. Yeah, that's probably a better, better uh, description. Anyway, this thing looks like it's about the size of a... A large microwave. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit taller. Yeah. And it uh, it actually can print in two different colors of plastic at the same time. Which is pretty awesome. But anyway, we should probably talk about what a 3D printer actually is, kind of give a quick rundown. For any of you who have not listened to the previous Tech Stuff episodes where we talked about 3D printing and you maybe have heard the term, but you don't really know what it is, it's a type of additive manufacturing. Additive, as in the opposite of subtraction yes. and the same thing as addition. You're putting on layers. Yes, you are building an object layer by layer in some way. Uh, your typical consumer model will be using a type of plastic with a binder material so that it binds to itself. And the layers can be very thin, maybe just a, a couple of microns uh, thick or even less, depending upon, like if you're using a state-of-the-art nano 3D printer. You're talking about layers so thin that they are like, it might as well be one-dimensional. Ours doesn't do that. No, ours is not. Ours we is a consumer a, model. Yeah, right. Uh, the kind of thing that you could, like an actual person could buy. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> yes, as opposed to those those non-real people who are able to get those nano printers. Um, yeah, it's exactly. It's the kind that a consumer could purchase straight o- online. In fact, that is the model that we have, is one that you can buy right now. Right. The idea of additive manufacturing is a cool paradigm. It's different than what we're usually used to. When you want to create a very specifically tailored 3D object, usually you're going to carve. Right. You're, you're going to take some away yeah. the external material until you've got what you need. Exactly. Um, we talked uh 
we were talking about this in terms of like Michelangelo's The David. Yes, yeah, so you would have a giant slab of marble and then you carve away all the stuff that doesn't look like David until you're left with David. Right. It's so it's kind of a cool metaphor there because there's this idea in the history of art about the sculpture emerging from the stone. Right. right? It, that it, it was exists always there. within the yeah. stone and you've just unleashed it. I guess this would be more like if you were to create the David by uh, dripping and creating a David stalagmite in a cave. Right, until it uh, was fully formed as David. Now the, Hopefully faster than that. The, right. The additive approach does mean that you are not wasting as much material, right? Because you're not taking a, a large block of something and then carving it down until you have the object you want. You are instead using pretty much the stuff you need to build the thing you want and and very little goes to waste. Right. With the exception of the whatever you use making all these dead prototypes that don't get to work right. But right. assuming you get your printer working in ship shape, then you're yeah, in good basically shape. no waste. And uh typically the consumer models are printing in plastic. Yeah. Right. So uh what does ours print in right now? Well, ours can do ABS or PLA. Uh right now we've got it loaded up with PLA. That's sort of a, a uh, a nice, friendly, bioplastic, polylactic acid. Yeah. Jonathan, ABS, what does that stand for? All right. Let, let's let's see. Say Acrylonitrile butadiene styrene. I say that without looking it up, so I could be wrong, but I think it's acrylonitrile <laughs> butadiene styrene. I did a, a video where I was talking about this stuff for something else, and um, yeah, I think I finally got it. I'll forget it by next week for sure. But the thing about these plastics is... When they are heated to a certain temperature, they become pliable. Right. And that's when you put them through what's called an extruder. It's what ends up printing these in these tiny layers, these thin streams of plastic that can be layered on top of one another. And then when it cools down, it will set into whatever shape it's been put into. Right. So you heat it up, you shape it, you let it cool, and then it's set that way. This is the stuff. ABS, by the way, is the stuff that uh, Lego bricks are made out of. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, if you are able to heat it up properly, you put it through this extruder. The extruder lays down the layers. The binding agent helps it bind to itself, preferably only to itself and not to anything else. And then once it cools down, you're good to go. You've got your object. Yeah. So that's the basic idea. And uh, we already talked about how it's less wasteful than other approaches. But one of the other big advantages is that you can make prototypes really, really fast. Right. So. This would be, for example, if you are some kind of inventor, engineer, maker, right. you're the person who's trying to put something together in your garage. And in a lot of cases, you're going to need a custom made part. Yeah. But how do you get that part? How do you get a custom made part? Well, I mean, you could come up with the design specs and you could mail those off to or maybe email these days. I don't know. Right. Send them off to a company yep. that does their own fabrication. And they'll and machine they'll, it. They'll make it and then they'll send it back to you. Man, that is a long time to wait, especially if you messed up right. and you need to redesign. There it. could be there could be so many points of failure along that pathway, right? First of all, your design might turn out not to work. Yeah. Secondly, the manufacturing company might end up making it, but not quite make it to your specifications, which means it still doesn't work. Even if you send in the correct stuff, you might get something back that's wrong. And either way, uh, once you figure out it doesn't work, you have to go through that whole process again. And this takes a lot of time. With a 3D printer, you could print up your design idea, you know, design it in a computer-assisted design program, a CAD program, mm -hmm. print it out, 
and then test it to see if it actually works. Assuming that everything printed properly, then you're, you can test it and see if it works. If it doesn't work, you can go tweak the design and print a new one, which means you go from design to prototype much more quickly. Of course, I'd imagine in a lot of cases that you're not going to be necessarily printing your final version. It might be more useful for producing just the prototype than for the actual final product because maybe you're, you're printing in PLA or ABS or right. some kind of plastic that's not really ideal for what it is, but you can, you can see if it fits, right? You can have this part. Well, especially if you're doing something like, imagine that you're, you're designing a new type of car and you want to test it to find out what kind of drag it's going to have when it's at speed. So you're going to put it through a, the, the model you're going to put through a wind tunnel. Well, it doesn't really matter what it's made out of, assuming that the uh, material itself is is nice and smooth. You want a high-resolution 3D printer. That means those layers have to be really, really thin. But you can put that through a wind tunnel and see if it's behaving the way you anticipated. And if it's not, then you can go back to the design process, change some things, and test it out again without going through this whole process of sending it out to a fabricator to build the whole thing. Of course, then there's another thing, which is customization, customization of designs that already exist. Sure. And this comes in when you couple the power of a 3D printer with the power of a 3D scanner. Right. A That's... 3D scanner or or even just a 3D design program. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. you can customize whatever you like, however you like it. But yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. What, what I had in mind is so you've got a part. Yeah. And But you want to change it a little bit. Sure. And so you can scan it with the 3D scanner. Things like this exist where you can use like lasers or even just camera-based technology. I've read about ideas on how to create 3D scanners with the Microsoft Connect. Yeah, the uh, the 360 Connect, we should yeah. say, just because the Xbox One is much more locked down. Uh yeah, but so you can scan a physical object, mm-hmm. turn that into a virtual object, right? Make changes to the virtual object, send it to the 3D printer and then you've got a new real object, new physical object. Right, right. So if you end up Seeing an idea that you think is good, but you want to improve upon it, which is something that is common in, say, the open source community. You know, this idea of people who have ways of improving something should be allowed the chance to do so. That kind of appeals to that type of person. Of course, there's a whole range of intellectual property issues when it comes down to 3D printing. We're not really going to touch on that. We've talked about that in previous episodes of Tech Stuff. Yeah. But it is one of those things where suddenly we have to worry about how do we protect the design of a physical object now that it's possible, at least depending upon the object, to make a duplicate of that, you know, without going to the original source, which is that's kind of interesting that we live in that world now. But anyway, the... 3D printing as a whole got started in industries like automotive and aerospace where it was used in prototyping. It wasn't even called 3D printing originally. And it had lots of different names depending upon the specific approach. But now we kind of use 3D printing as an overall term for anything that's using this kind of additive manufacturing approach where you're laying down layer by layer. They have different implementations, but they're all based on a similar process. Of course, I'd imagine once we're talking about industrial uses... We're not just talking about plastic. I mean, the consumer models are probably going to be printing in plastic. Right. But really, you can print in pretty much anything that can be melted yep. and then re-solidify in a way that is useful. Yeah, you can even do things like uh, you're not really printing in wood, 
but you can print a material that simulates wood. Yeah. So uh, there's all sorts of things that you can find in the industrial world. Now, granted, those printers are a little pricey. We're talking like hundreds oh, yeah, of thousands yeah. of dollars. That's why it's out of the consumer range. Yeah, the generally. consumer models tend to be between about a thousand and five thousand dollars these days. Yeah. Well, there are, there are actually some really cheap ones. Don't know how much you can do with them, but you can get a 3D printer for a few hundred bucks. Yes. Yes. I don't know how capable it is. But the, the one we have in the office, the dual extruder that can print in two different It was like 1200 bucks. 1200 Yeah. Which, you know, it, it's not like that's an insignificant amount of money, but it does put it within the realm of the consumer market, which is yeah. interesting. And I, um, I think that's pretty cheap for its size. Yes. Yeah, no, it really is, because I've seen MakerBots, which MakerBot 3D printers are great, too. Uh, the one we have is a, is a monoprice 3D printer. Uh, the MakerBot ones are really good, too, but they are... um they also tend to be a little more expensive. So it's interesting that we're now getting to this point where consumers can have this uh, this access themselves. And we'll talk more about the experience of using those in a minute. But first, I wanted to kind of look ahead and say, what are some of the crazy ways that 3D printers are being used right now? Like what are or being proposed uh, for the future? Um, and actually, the ones we're talking about now, they've all been used in some form or another uh Maybe not to a point where we can all get our hands on the stuff, but it's it's these are actual projects that are happening now. Yeah. How about 3D printing of buildings? Yeah. This actually is not that new of an idea. Uh, the one that the contour crafting one, which I have actually listed second in my notes, uh, contour crafting started back in the mid 2000s. Uh, but the idea has really taken off since uh, there's been a. <laughs> You know, this whole slew of information about 3D printing in general. Well, I mean, depending on how weird you want to get, didn't like Thomas Edison have this idea about pouring concrete into these molds to create houses? He may have. <laughs> it, 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 that rings a bell. Maybe I'm just maybe that's not true. Well, this kind of got in the news again uh, not too long ago when a company called Winsun, a Chinese company, began to uh, demonstrate 3D printers printing houses. They said they could print 10 houses in a day using four massive 3D printers. When I say massive, I'm talking about 10 meters wide. That's about 33 feet by 6.6 meters tall. That's 22 feet. These are big printers, and they were using four of them. Now, they printed uh, the houses in pieces, and then they had to be put together. Now, these aren't these aren't designed necessarily like the 3D printers you'll see sitting on a table somewhere, usually where there's an external rigid structure and then you print within it. Right. That doesn't work so well with houses. No, these look like giant arms. Now, now granted, again, since these were printing in in, uh, pieces, they were just sort of printing walls. Right. Or roofs. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, And they would lay down the, the geometric pattern to kind of give stability for things like corners, stuff like that. And they were using concrete and other um, recycled construction waste material to try and cut down on uh, on on materials that need to be used in the actual 3D process. Uh-huh. And if you look at it, if you watch the videos, it certainly doesn't look like a 3D printer the way I had described earlier, where you're adding thin layer to thin layer. It looks kind of like a... Uh, uh, frosting pipette like if you're piping frosting onto a cake at these big blobs of yeah. concrete being laid down one after the other which makes sense because if you're building something as large as a, as a house you can't be laying down micron thick layers you would take forever to, to finish a project um 
And you certainly wouldn't be able to build 10 in a day, even using four of these things. So it's the the layers are much thicker, but it was really interesting to see this approach. The houses are pretty modest. Uh, They could do two stories. But again, it was all printed in separate pieces that would have to be assembled later by by a crew. So it's not like it was printing it from the floor to the ceiling in one piece. But uh, it was still pretty interesting. Very, very simple, like, you know, front door, back door, no rooms type of thing. It was more of a, a kind of proof of concept, the idea that this could be a way to to provide housing either in emergency situations or even as uh, a way of, you know, if, if we're given more funding that we can build actual, you know, nice houses and not just a, a glorified room with a couple doors. <laughs> um but the, it's not the only one. The Contour Crafting Company I mentioned before, that came out of a project from the University of Southern California. And it's an even larger uh, uh, proposed 3D printer. They're, they've built some that were able to build walls very similar to the one from Winsoon. But the Big Daddy would be mounted on a rail system. So it could actually roll up and down this rail system. You have rails uh, that would be on either side of the print site, right? Mm-hmm. And you would be printing in between the rails. The uh, the printer itself would be kind of like a, a U-shaped, an upside-down U-shape on top of this rail system. And the print head would be able to move all uh, left and right and, and up and down the whole build site. You could build an entire house in one piece. So wow. with multiple <laughs> rooms and multiple floors. So it was really an interesting approach. Man, and, uh, bad to have an adhesion failure when you're printing a house. Yeah, we'll talk about adhesion failures at length <laughs> later. But the, uh, it was really cool seeing how this, this would work. And again, it was one of those things proposed for things like, uh, people are displaced after a disaster. Like imagine something like this after the Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, mm-hmm. being able to print housing for people so that they're not all having to, stay in a, a a giant stadium in decreasing conditions, <laughs> rapidly decreasing conditions. Right. Um, you know, it, it could definitely be really useful. And it really brings down the cost of fabricating something like that and also the time. Like if you can print a house in 24 hours, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed any housing projects going up anywhere, but they tend to take some time yeah. from start to finish. If you're able to do that in a span of 24 hours, that's incredible. So certainly has its place. So that, that was one of the, uh, the uses we wanted to talk about. So I got one that we came across actually when Lauren and I were doing a forward thinking episode without you. Yep. About food replicators. Yeah. Now this, this is, uh, interesting to me. So food replicators, of course, uh, the dream technology from Star Trek where it's just pulling atoms from anywhere <laughs> and then building dream food on it. Essentially, that's sort of the same thing as the molecular assembler you yeah. heard about from the Grey Goo scenario. And we concluded that we don't think that this is very likely anytime soon. Sure. Um, if it's ever going to happen at all. Right. But we also talked about, well, what are the things that, that are sort of in that realm? And, and a lot of people, when they saw that people were using 3D printers to create food, they said, okay, it's the Star Trek replicator. Right. It's not. Yeah. But it is very interesting. I don't know if I'd want to eat any of this food. Well, well, but who's looking into it? Well, actually, a NASA was looking into it. There's so there's more than one group. There are some private companies that are making just consumer food 3D printers for your home to make the you know little 
desserts and tortellinis and strange things like that. Interesting. Um, but the big one was NASA. So NASA was working with this company to create 3D printing technologies for space. And I guess the idea is that it can sort of help give astronauts some of the comforts of home. Right. Uh, so instead of having all of your food uh, decided upon in advance, and you may or may not have much of a say in it. Uh, so, you know, in space, you typically are eating from these prepackaged yeah. food things. These little bags. It tends that, to be kind of pastish. Yeah, they, they want to minimize uh, crumbs and things yeah. like that that can float away and get clogged in instruments. Sure. It needs to be things that are very easy to glob together and eat quickly out of the package. Right. Uh, I've read reports that the astronauts really like the shrimp cocktail, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds do I'm suspicious, but I'd be willing to try it after after my uh, MRE experience. I'm I'm pretty much ready for any of those. So I'd give it a go. Well, anyway, so you can actually go online and watch videos of this prototype right now. They they've filmed early versions of the 3D printed pizza. And the way this sort of works is that it works because you're using foods that can be easily sort of put into a homogenous container uh-huh. and then extruded in different layers. So if your ingredients are some kind of starchy dough paste, right, some kind of tomato based paste and some kind of cheese paste, right, you can make a you can print a pizza, you know. So the idea being that if you could get enough basic ingredients and then combine them in different ways, you could theoretically make a lot of different types of food or at least food that tastes and has different textures from each other, which would be important for deep space missions, right? The whole idea here is that the astronauts would have more choices so they wouldn't end up eating the same thing day after day after day and then risk space madness. (laughs) Um, That's certainly what would happen to me. I'm like, I am not having this terrible reconstituted imitation crab paste again. I got to have something else. Um, And also still be able to provide the nutritional value necessary to maintain uh, your health in in space, which we've talked about in forward thinking. It's not easy to do that. No. Keeping keeping healthy in space, really hard because space is trying to kill you in multiple ways. So um, it's, you know, it needs to be nutritious. It needs to be tasty. Because you don't want it to be unpleasant, especially for a deep space kind of thing where, yeah. again, space madness and and have that variety, at least the illusion of variety. Even if the basic <laughs> ingredients are all like maybe it's limited to something like 20 different basic ingredients. You could print up a great variety of things just by playing with how much of each ingredient goes into a particular dish. Right. And the description I read even had it where they were printing essentially the taste and smell and the nutrients on top of the finished product anyway. So you could play with all this sort of stuff and create all these different textures and tastes. And, uh, and again, you're just using that basic stuff, which oh, man. Is, is an interesting idea. I'd, I'd be willing to try it just to see how, uh, how different two quote unquote different dishes would actually taste and feel. I'd want to, well, I'd want to see. Was, I was imagining the glitch where it prints you a pizza, but it makes it smell like cherry pie. Right. <laughs> And it, and it ends up tasting Something's like wrong tasting here. like duck a l'orange. And you're yeah. like, what is going on? My brain is broken. Uh, yeah. So and anyway, so that's not so great at averting space madness then. But let's let's stay on the topic of space. OK. OK. But not in space madness kind of way. 
so 3D printers are starting to take a larger role in space industry in general, not just in the food, but in uh, building stuff that allows us to get into space. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're back to the the old thing we were talking about, the prototyping, right? Sure. Except making actual parts yeah. that we're going to use to the point where lives depend on. Right. We're no longer just talking about printing a, a prototype that we test and then we end up making the final product based upon that prototype. We're actually talking about using 3D printers to build the parts themselves. Uh, so SpaceX's Dragon V2 space capsule is amazing. It's super cool. There was a big unveiling event where Elon Musk came out and said, take a look at this beauty here. And it it's probably the first uh, space capsule I've seen where it's supposed to be an actual working space capsule and it looks like something from science fiction. Yeah. So instead of having that, those massive control panels that have just tons of switches and buttons and things that are completely un- unidentifiable to me, it's like, like trying to fly the Millennium Falcon where you just have all these switches and you're like, how does this actually work? No, it work? looks like you pilot it with an iPad. Yeah. <laughs> that's what the new one looks like. It's got these giant screens and, uh, a lot of it looks more intuitive and sleek, which mm-hmm. is pretty interesting. Uh, but beyond that, it's also got these super Draco 16,000 pound thrust engines, four of them. And those have engine chambers that were made by 3D printers. Uh, it did not use plastic, which you would hope, hope not. Yeah. Because <laughs> you imagine <laughs> that the temperatures would probably be above that melting point. Right. Instead, it used. Direct metal laser sintering, uh, sintering, S-I-N-T-E-R-I-N-G. So this is where you take a powder, in this case, a metal powder, and you center it. You turn it into solid material through heat or pressure. In this case, we're talking about heat, which mm-hmm. is provided by a laser. So you shoot this laser at the metal powder and you lay the metal powder down layer by layer. And through this process, which is very similar to the 3D printers we see in the consumer market, it's just using a different implementation. You build the object you need, in this case, the engine chambers. So it's really cool to me that 3D printers could help us actually get into space. Yeah. And beyond that, we're talking about eventually having 3D printers in space where you can print things like tools that you might need or even replacement parts for the spacecraft you're in. Right. Well, that, I mean... There you're sort of back to the replicator, except right. uh, obviously it can't make it from atoms. And right. You probably can't make anything. No, you would, you would be limited by both the, the materials, the materials yeah. and whatever your printer's dimensions are. Nevertheless, this could be really, really useful in space. I mean, just one example I thought of is uh, obviously they didn't have kind of sophisticated 3D printers back in, back then. But think about Apollo 13. Right. When they had to, on the fly, build a, I believe it was a CO2 scrubber. It was some kind of, it was a ventilation tool that they needed. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't have an extra one aboard. And so they were having a deadly buildup of CO2 in the capsule, uh, and they had to improvise one, basically. Right. They had some guys trying to figure out how to put one together based on the, the stuff they had lying around. And they sort of did get it working. But, I mean, imagine if they could have just loaded up the virtual CO2 scrubber on the computer and pressed print to get a new one. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. That could very well be the sort of thing we see in the future. Um, it also helps because it's expensive to launch stuff into space. I mean, it's incredibly expensive because of the fuel and, and you know, SpaceX, it's looking to try and bring those costs down by using as many reusable features as possible. 
So that way you don't have to build a brand new vehicle every single time you want to launch something up into space. But even so, you still have a lot of expenses and it's, it costs a huge amount of money to just send a couple of pounds of stuff up into space. Uh, now add on to that, that if you're having actual parts that you need to send up, that takes up physical space. It's not just the weight it actually takes up room. If you were able to send just the raw material up, the toner in this case, to a 3D printer, you could conserve at least the space part. The weight would mm-hmm. still be ultimately the same. Of course, one way it might affect the weight, I don't know how often astronauts use all the tools they take. I mean, what if it is the case that you, you take up more than you need just in case? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe all you'd need to take in this case would be, again, the, the raw materials and the virtual objects. And then so you don't have to take all these tools that you never end up using. Right. You, you just realize, like, I need to use this one in a few minutes. I'm going to print one. Like, seriously, I can't find the nail clippers again. Where do these things go off to? Just print me a new one. I'm just thinking of my own self here. All right. And then moving on from space, there's also the use of 3D printers in medicine. Uh, one of the stories that I looked at was a student by the name of Denise Karashin, who built a, uh, a, a new kind of cast for broken bones using a 3D printer. And it looks kind of like you're wearing super heavy fishnets on whatever limb you happen to have. It's got this kind of web pattern. So there's parts of your skin are left open to the air. Uh, but it is there to stabilize the limb. So it, it's doing the same thing as a, a plaster cast. But because your uh, skin is still left open to the air, you don't have to worry about one. You don't have to worry about it getting wet and then suddenly getting all stinky and nasty and stuff. Oh, you could probably scratch inside. Yeah, wow. that would be a big one. And also uh, on a, uh, a slightly more therapeutic note, besides just, you know, relieving an itch, you could use a technique called low intensity pulsed ultrasound or lipus which can possibly help broken bones heal by stimulating uh, the healing by you actually beam ultrasonic frequencies through the skin into the bone. Uh, but the problem with that is that you usually have to have contact with the skin in order to get an effective um, beam to the bone itself. And if you're wearing a plaster cast, then that will block the ultrasonic frequencies. Um, there's still some controversy or at least some debate about how effective lipus is in this particular approach. I've never even heard of that. So does it stimulate the osteoblasts to make new? It's uh, it's actually bone? pretty complex. And the hypotheses about what the mechanism is, that there's some disagreement with that as well. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things that still, depending upon the study you read, is really promising or it's negligible. So it depends upon what you're looking at. I think that it's going to be one of those things where we still need to see a lot more work done in that field and research to make sure that it's uh, that it's actually efficacious. <laughs> but uh, it's promising. So and at any rate, even if even if that turns out to not work, the ultrasonic approach and still scratch. Yeah, you can still scratch. Yeah. So if you've ever had a broken bone, like a broken leg or a broken arm where you had to wear that plaster cast. And you know how irritating that can be. Just imagine if that was just a, a plastic web-like case. And they could print these into two pieces and it just snaps onto your limb. So uh also means that it's pretty easy to take it off, too. So it's not like, you know, uh, as, as big a deal as it would be with plaster. But you could also print body parts like a prosthesis. Oh, we've seen that in the past as well. People getting uh, prosthetic hands or prosthetic arms or prosthetic legs. And printing them. Uh, so I guess here's where the uh, the sort of 
endless customization sort of helps because Certainly. you can tailor it exactly to what your need is. Yeah, and there are open source projects where uh, it's the attempt is to bring down the cost of developing a a prosthetic because they are very expensive. And so it puts it out of out of the range of a lot of people who need it. And there's the hope that through 3D printers and by creating models that are very effective uh, even if they are rudimentary compared to state-of-the-art robotic prostheses, they can help people who otherwise would go without. So that's really cool. And then there's also just printing things like a replacement joint. Um, that's something that I'm seeing 3D printers used for, to print something like a, a hip replacement, so that you get something specifically tailored to the person, the patient. So you don't have to worry about, you know, being approximately what the patient needs. You could you can make it precisely to what the patient needs. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely uh, useful. And then uh, if that's not cool enough, how about printing a new organ? Like a new a, organ. Yeah, like a liver. Not not like the musical instrument. Like, I mean, like a human organ. Not like Bach. No, no, no. I'm talking about printing like something like... Bach's liver. Yeah, Bach's liver or Bach's lungs or Bach's heart. Uh, so yeah, there's been some early work with this, and it's very promising. The... Basic idea would be to take stem cells from the transplant patient. This is under an ideal implementation. You take stem cells from the transplant patient. Use those stem cells to develop into whatever tissue is needed. So let's say a patient who wants to have a, who needs to have a heart transplant. So you do it to print a new heart and you use uh, essentially a, a biological scaffold to build, to print the tissue on top of until you have a working heart that you then can uh, uh, give to the patient. You can you can surgically remove their heart and replace it with the printed heart. And because it comes from the patient's own stem cells, one, the patient doesn't have to wor- wait for a suitable donor because they are effectively their own donor. And two, they are less likely to have their body reject that organ because it's based off their own biology. Right. Now, there are some big, big challenges with this. Because it's not just printing the tissue that you need to do. You have to print the tissue exactly correctly. You have to have the uh, the the vascularization is what they call it. That's the the printing out the blood vessels so that the organs will re- get the nutrients they need so they don't die, mm-hmm. and also have the pathway for uh, anything that the organs excrete so that they don't build up toxins. Right. That's really complicated stuff. Oh, yeah. But I just read a report that said scientists at the universities of Harvard, Stanford, MIT, and Sydney have kind of reached a breakthrough with this. And so it looks like the vascularization problem is a little closer to being solved. It's not that we're going to be seeing this technique used in the next year or two years. This might be 10 or 15 years down the line. But it's incredibly promising, which is really cool. This idea of being able to take away one of the big problems when it comes to transplant patients, which is finding a suitable donor. I mean, that's that totally. there, are, there are people who are having to wait for years for that kind of thing. Right. And and uh, this has the potential to completely eliminate that. Yeah. So anyway, that, that, that's pretty amazing. It's yeah. Phenomenal stuff. And there are other really cool uses of 3D printers out there. But now that we've talked about the bleeding edge, best of the best, the, the stuff we're going to see in the future, let's talk about a comedy of errors, your experience using our 3D printer. And keep in mind, this is not to say 
that the 3D printer we have is a bad one. Oh, no. It's, it's just very particular. Well, there's sort. this is sort of a comment. I, I've learned a lot about the state of consumer 3D printers uh-huh. uh, lately. So what have we made here in the office? Well, I printed a little castle that successfully printed nice. all the way up until um, the little flagpole at the top of the castle was supposed to come to a point, but instead it comes to... A globular, blah, blah, kind of jab of the hut thing at the top of the flagpole. Right. The, I haven't quite figured out how to do points yet. Okay. Okay. Uh, I've printed some Illuminati pyramids for the guys at Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. So I just did that by combining a pyramid with an eye, and, and they have them now. Yeah. And also with the uh, initials, I think, didn't you? For yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So along the bottom of the pyramid, yeah. it says uh, STD. <laughs> W, however you <laughs> acronymize stuff they don't want you to know. Um, I, I designed a How Stuff Works logo. Yeah. That has a big, it has a little question mark. Yep. At the o. Yep. Uh, made a bunch of those. And I, I put that together in an online CAD I can talk about in a minute. A couple of actually functional whistles that at least 14 people have put their mouths on now. Yeah. I, I'm one of those people. I expect to have some sort of crazy. You'll, you'll contract mono anytime yeah. now. Yeah. Um, I certainly have started to lose interest in, in, uh, things like, um, you know, work. <laughs> I don't know if that's mono or just yeah. that we have a, a holiday weekend coming up after we finish uh, this the podcast. So. Yeah. Uh, so I've got a lot of malformed half whistles that are, or maybe more like yeah. one eighth of a whistle. It, yeah. It's kind of like what, uh, what whistles would look like if they came from HP Lovecraft's mythology. Yeah. And then a just massive, massive, elephant graveyard of plastic hairballs and plastic tumbleweeds. So for one thing, we are we are printing with PLA. That's right. right? Not not ABS. So th- the different plastics have different strengths and weaknesses. Sure. I've learned uh, PLA is, I think, a good thing if you're just doing what we're doing, which is experimenting. Yeah. It doesn't give off fumes like ABS does. In mm-hmm. fact, I was just reading because someone in our office was, I'd say, with with perfectly good reason concerned um should we have that thing out printing while yeah. we're all sent- is it, sitting around is it creating here? toxic fumes that's going to make us all sick uh, i read about it there so apparently 3d printing has been measured to produce these tiny particles you know these these little uh very very small particles that when mm-hmm. you breathe in a whole lot of these particles it may be dangerous mm-hmm. um it doesn't seem to me now this doesn't mean please go huff your 3D printer. From what I can just tell uh, on the reading I've done, it doesn't seem to me like PLA has got a lot to worry about. ABS might be a different question. And that, and that might be a case where you really need some good ventilation. Right. Um, and, and PLA, it said, had a lot fewer of these particle emissions than ABS did. Uh, so we've been using PLA on a fast action dual extruder 3d printer. So dual extruder means you can load two filaments up. You put two rollers of plastic wire on the back of it. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is what these, acts as the toner. Yeah. And it pulls these filaments up through the top in these little tubes down to the extruders. The extruders heat up the filament so that it becomes molten mm-hmm. and it drips out the end as the extruder moves along in a preset pattern until the whole thing is laid down and it's created. Um, so from what I've heard, this printer is much faster than the one we used to have in the yes. office. I never got to use that printer. I've heard uh, Annie and Video used it a lot. Yep. 
but they said that it took that printer like all day to print a little chess piece that we still have. And this one can print pretty quickly. I think the whistles we made took like 30 or 40 minutes. Yeah. So that's fast. There's a lot I really like about 3D printing. Yep. I really like how it gets you from idea to object. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's very cool to design something in a virtual environment and then see it become a real object that you can hold in your hand. Right, to go uh, from conceptual to physical. Right. Obviously, we've been doing stuff like this with 2D documents for years. Sure. And that's just not very impressive to us anymore. No, no we're... For, for some reason, it seems like it should be. I mean, it's the same thing. You're taking a virtual document and suddenly it becomes physical. But I don't know. That just doesn't seem to be a big deal. Right. Uh, but it is pleasing to me to print a 3D object in the same way that it's pleasing to me to, like, find a place based on a map. There's some kind of deep comfort caused by the connection between your imagination and material reality. Sure. I don't know. It's a thing that's always been true for me. Um, another thing about it that's cool is also the reason it's kind of frustrating, which is that 3D printing is much more widespread than it used to be on one hand. But on the other hand, it's still sort of in the geek space. Yeah. We're still working it out. Yep. Uh, and, and I think that most 3D printers, certainly the one I've been working with and all the different ones I've been reading about online and these forums I've been consulting for pointers on how to fix the problems I've been having. It's not 3D printers these days aren't like buying a new iPad. You know, right. what, what is it? Apple hardware. They've always said about it. It just works. Right. Right. That's sort of the slogan. Yeah. It's not even like printing, uh, like getting a, a regular printer that's just plug and play. Right. Because a regular printer these days, you could get yeah. a printer that hooks up via USB to your computer. You don't even have to install any drivers or anything. It all looks for everything for you, automatically installs, and next right. thing you know, you can print. Uh, that's, you know, we've, that, that technology has reached maturity. Right. right? But we're so, we're living in this world now that is dominated by the philosophy of it just works. That's right. what technology should be. So when you get a new iPad, you pull it out of the box and it's ready to go. It's got built in interfaces for pretty much everything you might want to do. It's all there, and it's very obvious, and it's very easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to open up the hood, customize, and configure the settings. But from my experience and from what I've read online, most or all of the consumer 3D printers these days, it does not just work. You have to do a lot of reconfiguration and fiddling with the machine and, and messing with the code to try to get things to come out right. Uh, you got to change the platform temperature, change the extruder temperature. Uh, maybe that's not right. Maybe change a few more degrees, level the build plate covering the platform with, you know, just whatever you think can make it stick. It's very interesting. So I had a lot of fun doing this kind of troubleshooting. And I yep. think a lot of the people who have 3D printers these days are the kind of people who have fun troubleshooting machines it's, like that. It kind of reminds me of the difference between Android and iOS. Yeah. Uh, Android users tend, or at least they used to. It's gotten a lot closer. The field has really narrowed quite a bit. But when Android first came out, it was an operating system that appealed to people who were uh, willing to put in some work to get the most out of their operating system. Yeah. Now, iOS is a fantastic operating system. And And it, it does really just work. Yeah, it's one of those, you hear stories all the time about how kids pick up an iPhone and within seconds have figured out how to, how to navigate through it. They figured out how to zoom and get out of that. And, and no one's told them how it works. It just 
works because that's the way it was designed from the ground up. It does mean that you're limited in what you can do, but what you can do is so there's so many, so much variety in what you can do that it doesn't feel like you're limited. Android OS, you were less limited in what you could do, but it also wasn't as intuitive. And that seems to be where the 3D printing world is right now. It's not necessarily intuitive to work with these things. You have to put in some work to get the best results out of it. But if you're willing to do that, you can get some pretty incredible results. Right. And I also like how that has created this cool community of people online who use 3D printers. Like I said, I've been looking at a lot of forums and stuff to try to figure out how to fix the problems I've had. There there are online communities. It is a tech community. People figuring out, oh, okay, a lot of people have had this problem. Here's one way that they often solved it. It does make you wonder who was the first person to attempt some of the solutions, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, did people like risk damaging their machines? Cause they, yeah, you know. because some of these cases, like when you talk about the platform, that's the surface upon which the 3D printer lays down the plastic, mm-hmm. right? I, so, oh, yeah. And so some people have these crazy solutions like, oh, you can't get your PLA to stick to the platform. Try spraying it with hairspray. Yeah. I mean, who figured that out for the right. first time? Right. Yeah. Who who risked putting that on there and then having it baked onto it? Because because <laughs> this platform does heat up. Yeah, it's right? a heated. But no, so, I think not all platforms these days right, are heated, but right, this one is. Right. Um. And so this whole thing about the the sort of the the troubleshooting, open up the hood, the techie side of the people who use three D printers today, and how it seems to me most or all consumer models are, it makes me think, wow. What's it going to be like when there is the first 3D printer that is like an Apple product? Yeah, where it's just plug and play. Yeah, the first 3D printer that's just for people who aren't interested in doing all this customization and troubleshooting and and kind of tech fun. They don't want to go on an adventure. They just want something that works. And I I kind of predict that whoever creates that first thing at an affordable price range, obviously. Something that's plug and play, it's intuitive, it's totally easy, you don't have to be techie to get it. That's going to be a gold mine, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be huge. It'll be one of those things where, uh, just like a printer used to be outside the realm of a, everyone but the early adopters who had a lot of money to spend on stuff. Now it's, you know, now it's commonplace to the point where the printers are less expensive than the toner is. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's totally true. That's how they get you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's also how a lot of electronic waste gets generated where you're like, I'm just going to go buy a new printer. <laughs> just use the toner that comes with the new printer. And when it runs out, I'll go out and buy a new printer. Um, that's not 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 good uh, environmental uh, practice there. But at any rate, yeah, when we reach that, you're really we're already seeing this this explode in the hobbyist uh, yeah. market. When it goes beyond the hobbyist market, it's really going to shake things up. Right. So let's talk about. The actual process of building something. You mentioned that you built pyramids. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm going to imagine here that since you <laughs> built pyramids with specific design and specific, uh, logo type or at least, a, a initialism at the base of it. I had to be helped by UFOs. That's the only way that it could be explained. Either that or you had to make it yourself. Cause I can't imagine that this design just naturally existed somewhere out there already and you just, uh, pulled it, pulled down a virtual model and sent it to the printer. You had to build this, right? No, of course. Well, I, so I have built some things and I have imported some other things. So I'm using a couple of different programs, uh, or CADs, computer aided design yeah. programs. You can design virtual objects with a lot of different kinds of CAD software. And primarily I've been using a free online program called Tinkercad, mm-hmm. which is pretty basic. Uh, it, it's not going to get 
you know, you're not going to have a lot of really complex options, but it's just simple. It's fun. It's easy to use and it's a great resource. You can design an object on a virtual work surface. You can import shapes. So you can just go over to the toolbar and say, I'd like to bring in a pyramid and you can move it over and change its dimensions and add things to it. And Mm -hmm. you can group it with other shapes and ungroup it so that you can like you can create more complex objects by this grouping process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can import letters and symbols. You can even load designs that other users have made and made public. Mm-hmm. So after that, you, you, you finished with your design. You're saying, okay, here it is on my virtual workspace. I want to make this. Then you export it to a file that you can send to your 3d printer, like an STL file. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think that stands for stereolithography. Mm hmm. That makes sense. And you, you export it to that file and download it to your computer. Next thing you, next thing we do with our version, at least, you, you take it to an interface program. Uh, so the printer we have connects to my computer with a USB cable, just mm-hmm. standard plug-in USB. I, ha- I had to get some drivers for it. Right. Um, but you just put it right in. You can also take stuff to the printer on an SD card, but I haven't done that yet. And it interfaces through a program called Replicator G. Uh, so this program takes your design and it interprets it for the printer. Okay. So it looks at what you've designed and then it generates a segment of what's called G code. It's a series of instructions that tell the printer one step at a time how to build the object you've designed. So it's sort of like it, it takes the whole picture and then it breaks it down into 10,000 steps. Right. So That's, ma- yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Right. And so then you can automatically generate the G code and just click print, or you can manually edit the G code if you want. So you can go in and you can change individual lines of the G code. I, I ended up doing this when I wanted to change, uh, like certain temperature parameters. I, I was having a lot of trouble getting the things to stick to the platform. And I right. was like, Oh man, what could I do? So I tried making the platform hotter. I tried making the extruders hotter and then lowering the temperature. So it, just going in and changing things like that. Yeah. Changing the different parameters to see if there's one particular or maybe two particular things that are, are the source of the problem. This is where we were talking about the adhesion failures, right? Yeah. We, I have had so many adhesion failures and I know I'm not alone. This is a thing people all over the internet are talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a, it's, it depends on what, what type of material you're using, what printer you're using, but there are different problems that come up all the time. And one of them is the adhesion failure. That's where you you start a print and it lays down an initial layer and then it starts trying to build up from that layer. But the problem is, say, imagine the plastic, instead of laying flat on the platform while you print a new layer on top, the new layer starts sticking to the extruder. And the extruder starts pulling the entire thing around. It peels up from the platform right. and just follows the extruder around as the extruder just continues on its way. Thinking, yeah. I'm laying a new layer on. But in fact, what it's doing is rolling around a ball of plastic that gets bigger and bigger. Right. And it's like plastic strands. Yeah. That, that, so it's not a solid ball of plastic. No, it looks like a hairball made of plastic right. or a tumbleweed made of plastic. Right. And uh, so we've got a bunch of those. They're very funny. Yeah. And um, it was one of those things where you had to do the research to find out the different uh, things that other people had tried, and you found that some of them really work really well. Yeah, some of them really. Some that were counterintuitive. What one that that blew my mind? But this was one I saw very often. It was just um, if you're using PLA, I think this is not so much a tip for ABS, but with PLA specifically, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of plastic we're using, put blue painters tape on the platform. Yep. I, 
and, and it, it worked. And I it mean, adhered. it's great. Uh, another problem was just that I had to watch some videos to try to see, okay, I feel like I'm not leveling the build platform correctly. Right. It's not, that's not the right distance between the build platform and the extruder. Yeah. So that's a thing that you've got to do pretty frequently with uh, a 3D printer. And I was getting frustrated because I kept having these failures. And finally, I was like, okay, I I just got to go check it out online. And I watched some videos of other people leveling the build platform. They were doing it a little differently than I was. They were moving the platform closer to the extruder, actually raising it up higher. Mm -hmm. And this was counterintuitive to me. You know, I was thinking, well, it seems like you need to give it more room to lay down the plastic so the extruder isn't touching the plastic and peeling it up. Right. Totally the opposite. It needed to be closer so that it could press down the initial layers, and that was what would prevent it from peeling up like that. Interesting. So I, I was just configuring the device wrong. Hmm. Um, but it was very interesting to find this out, to see how people have figured out this problem before, and there are tons of threads on it, you know. Right. Uh, so obviously you were not the only person to encounter this issue. And no, then, no, no, no. Yeah. But that, that, again, is a great example of how there's a community that's risen up around this particular technology and it's one that is supportive yeah and i get the feeling as i was just saying earlier that a lot of the people in this community i think a lot of them today are not the people who want it to just work necessarily right they kind of enjoy they like getting under the hood yeah and i i have to say it's been frustrating when it doesn't work but it's also a lot of fun when you make something that didn't work finally work right sure sure so, uh, so anyway, I uh, sort of to back up and give the broad perspective on 3D printing mm-hmm. today, I think consumer 3D printing it has come a long way and mm-hmm. it's in a really cool place right now. But there is one more step. And after it makes that step, I think it will explode. Yeah. It, I mean, in a good way. Right, <laughs> not, right. Not, not explode into a million pieces, but explode into a, a very lucrative consumer market. And you're going to see just a, an equal explosion in creativity of, as people start to make designs of things that when you print them are really creative. I had talked about jokingly that we should print our own uh, Dungeons and Dragons dice yeah. with this thing. And um, yeah, I printed earlier today, I printed a dual color Hilbert cube, which was this uh, cube of interlocking color designs uh, because we have a dual extruder. It can actually print in two colors at once, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but of course, Jonathan sees a six sided object and thinks dice. Yep. That's you can take the geek out of the game, <laughs> but you can't take the game out of the geek. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's it's really interesting that we have this to play with now. Yeah. And we expect we'll continue to experiment with it. Joe's going to become a 3D printing uh, guru before too long. Oh, I doubt it. And we'll we'll send him all these sort of ideas. Yeah. We'll just be like, hey, hey, Joe, my my this table is a little wobbly. Can you print like a little stopper for this table? (laughs) Yeah. That kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's funny. Like you could think of the 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 seemingly minor meaningless sort of stuff you can use a 3D printer for. But as we already covered in the first part of this podcast, there's some really, you know, like life altering potential to this technology as yeah. well. And and even stuff that you might be able to do with just a consumer printer that could be that kind of thing. You could print something that you, you know, you've always needed around the house, but didn't even know you could find out there. Or uh, the example I always like to use is imagine that you've got a piece of furniture. Like I, I've had, Shelving units, for example, where a 
particular part that joined two pipes together broke. And I think, well, where the heck am I going to find this specific thing that I need? Because otherwise, this is still a perfectly working shelf. But because this one little plastic piece that joined two other metal pieces together is broken, I can't use it anymore because it's no longer sturdy. I could go and print a replacement for it. Totally. Instead of having to sit there and try and find something else that would work in its place. So that's really it's you know, it's it's really got a lot of practical applications as well as just all the super cool stuff that you can do with it. Yeah. Well, so my bottom line is if you're out there and you want to make yourself a fortune, I would say become the person who makes that consumer affordable 3D printer that just works. Yep. So you heard it here first, folks. (laughs) It's not going to be either of us, as it turns out. Nope. (laughs) All right. Well, that's been a great discussion about 3D printers, a a good update and description about what it's like working with one. If any of you out there have experiences working with 3D printers, I want to hear all about it. Let me know. Send me an email. The address you can send it to is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also drop us a line on Twitter, Tumblr, or Facebook. Our handle at all three is techstuffhsw. You can hear Joe regularly on the Forward Thinking Podcast. So if you haven't subscribed to that, go check that out. We cover all sorts of stuff. We like to really get into some crazy ideas about the future. We have a great series about stuff you never see in science fiction films, but you totally have to wonder what it's going to be like in the future. Um, we also occasionally just talk about Nick Cage at length. As must be done. Yeah, yeah. In no way at all necessarily related to the future. <laughs> it just happens. So if that sounds appealing, you should definitely check it out. And uh, we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 